Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We look back at Ferrari's victory in the Hungarian Grand Prix and ask whether Mercedes or Ferrari has it right when it comes to team tactics. Welcome to a secret high-tech studio location in downtown Budapest where we're going to look back on the Hungarian Grand Prix. And anybody who suggests we've just all piled into my hotel room, you're completely incorrect. And if you hear something that sounds like housekeeping trying to barge in, that's definitely not what's happening. My name is Ed Straw, the editor-in-chief of Autosports. And joining me, I have two guests to rake over the ashes of a, a tense and interesting race. First up, we have Stuart Codling who I shall introduce as having seven years in the catering industry in his past life, which actually came in useful this weekend. We saw you doing a little bit of cheffery. Uh, yes, I was a victim of an epic stitch-up by the Pirelli motorhome crew. I was invited there at 4.30 for a thing. They didn't specify what. I thought, um, you know, the editor of F1 Racing is in on this. He said, you need to go. So it was, am I interviewing someone? Is it an exclusive preview of the Pirelli calendar? Who knows? And instead, their PR man pops out and goes, oh, wonderful, you're here. Uh, and gives me a, a an apron and a chef's hat and said, well, come along, we've got the mystery test for you of the ingredients. And they did this whole sort of MasterChef thing with um, their chef, who it turns out is the 
2011 winner of MasterChef Italia and uh, now now cooks high grade food for the guests of the Pirelli Motorhome. So we, we, we did a fun feature where this fellow did the whole John Turode and Greg Wallace thing of gurning in the background while I attempted to make sense of some random ingredients and cook something. Can I just do a quick impression clarification there? Was that an impression of former autosport man Anthony Peacock you did that? Yes it was. <laughs> it's not it's not your finest impression. It's not as good as Patrick Head, is it? Uh, Patrick Head is a very good impression. See if you can drop Patrick Head in later. That might be a tricky one, but uh, it's always a popular one. And I'm also joined by Autosports Grand Prix editor Ben Anderson. Now, I should apologise in advance for Ben. It's possible he might be a bit mad in this recording because he was up till the small hours, or even when the small hours are starting to get a little bit bigger, compiling driver ratings and doing race analysis and all these sorts of things you can read on autosport.com and then complain about on social media. Yeah, yeah, I'm ready for my weekly dose of abuse, bleary-eyed. Happy to join the podcast and curious to know how uh, Mr. Codling's pasta compared to uh, the winner of Italian MasterChef. That's a very good... Were you competitive? I mean, a, a Paul de esque performance in that company with that preparation would be fantastic. If you're referring to the dimensions of the shaved parmesan, uh, I, I used sprinkled pre-grated parmesan, I'm afraid. But uh, yeah, I performed a tagliatelle thing. Uh, one, when one of the mystery boxes was unboxed, it, it had a what, what I can only describe as a flummox-making set of ingredients that were, I think, left over from lunch. So there were some cubes of raw tuna, there were some dried cherries, a leek, some flat-leaf parsley... And I kind of thought, well, what on earth could I possibly make of them? And this is the classic error that MasterChef contestants make when they are faced with the invention test, is that they think, ooh, I've got to make something that has all of this. So instead, I made quite a simple dish of a cherry tomato ragu with uh, basil, some toasted pine nuts and roasted aubergine and red pepper. And it was interesting to see what Spiros did with the similar ingredients the next day because Tagliatelle a la F1 Racing was on the menu for guests of Pirelli the next day. <laughs> and uh, he, he managed to make the ragu somewhat more unctuous. He was more generous with the pine nuts and had fewer vegetables in. I thought it was considerably better than mine, but he was he was interested. He was very complimentary about my effort. No no jus or foam on your oh, dish? Dear. Surely that's the, the standard bear of a MasterChef dish. I, 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 I nearly had a meltdown in the kitchen when I said, you know, where is your liquid nitrogen? Well, I hope you enjoy the latest episode of the Cooking Podcast. Uh, we're going to evolve back into the Autosport Podcast and have a little bit of a look at the Hungarian Grand Prix. One, two for Ferrari, Sebastian Vettel leading home Kimi Raikkonen with Valtteri Bottas and Lewis Hamilton right behind. Ben, obviously the really interesting thing in this race was the different approaches to team orders, team strategy that Ferrari and Mercedes employed. Yeah, um, Ferrari like to say that their drivers can fight freely for victory. We saw Monaco, um, Vettel come from behind to beat Raikkonen, who qualified on pole for that race. And Vettel did so by staying out longer than his teammate around the pit stops, unleashing some hidden pace and then ending up ahead when he came out after his own stop. In this race, Vettel had a steering problem, was slower than Raikkonen for most of the race. Raikkonen felt he could have won, felt he had the pace to win, but wasn't allowed or wasn't given the opportunity or didn't take the opportunity to unleash this pace and overtake Vettel at the pit so he ended up playing rear gunner for Vettel which was perfect for Ferrari really because he could protect Vettel's championship lead while Mercedes uh, struggled to make an impression on them at the front. He didn't seem very happy about it did he? It was it was very interesting watching that race unfold particularly around the pit stops because you kind of wondered 
were, were they going to allow this to happen? And Kimi did unleash a fair bit of pace when Vettel stopped. And then he was, you know, enough such that he was very frustrated and angry with Paul de Resta for not scuttling out of his way fast enough, which will obviously be a great addition to the list of things that make Paul de Resta angry. Uh, and um, then they brought him straight in and even had a little pop on the radio, said, why, why, why did you bring me in? I, I could have carried on. Ferrari felt that Vettel would have been, in their words, dead without another Ferrari behind him to protect him from yeah. He would have Mercedes gone backwards, wouldn't he? Because of this steering problem. Um, the Mercedes approach is more egalitarian, I think. Early in the season, it was interesting that in Bahrain, Bottas was really struggling for pacing, I think, second place at the time. And Hamilton was coming up fast and Bottas basically let Hamilton through so that he could go and attack Vettel, who was out front. And he didn't have to hand the place back when he couldn't make an impression on Vettel. Hamilton finished second, Bottas finished third in that race. But since, Bottas has become a a proper contender for the championship. He's won a couple of races. And now Mercedes are agonising about, again, about how to treat their two drivers in a situation where... Um, they're both fighting for their own lives and Mercedes also want to do the best for the Constructors' Championship. And they decided in this case that um, Hamilton, again, quicker than Bottas in this race. I think he was quicker than Bottas all weekend, really. He just didn't quite get things together in qualifying. Hamilton said, let me have a pop at the Ferraris, let me through. Bottas agreed, I'll give the place back if I can't do it. Uh, And he did, um, which is very sporting. And he received a lot of congratulations from his team for, for doing that on the last lap. But that's three points lost more to Vettel than he otherwise would have in a race where clearly Ferrari were trying to maximise Vettel's score as far as possible. I was slightly surprised Mercedes did that from the perspective of, well, Mercedes and Hamilton switched back. It's good to see the kind of honest competition, if you if you want to put it that way, but those three points could make a big difference at the end of the season. Bottas is now was he 30, 33 points behind the championship lead, and while it would be great to see Bottas having a championship run, Hamilton is realistically going to be their their better shot. I guess the flip side of the coin is we're all saying now, well, if Hamilton loses the championship by a couple of points, he'll be kicking himself for that. But I guess were Bottas to win it by a couple of points, it would actually perversely become quite an important important moment. But it is interesting that contrast that you're seeing between Ferrari and Mercedes. And if you're Ferrari, you're probably fairly pleased about that. Raikkonen did exactly the job he was meant to. That was a very good performance from him. I've no doubt he had the pace to very likely get ahead of Vettel had he been given the chance to go. The one thing, though, about having competition in team as Mercedes have is if you're going to allow this kind of honest competition, you order a guy past to have a go. If he can't get past, he drops back. Do you not also have to let them fully battle on track as well? Would Hamilton have been able to attack Bottas in normal circumstances where he not let through? So that's that's the slightly difficult thing where these things sometimes get a bit confusing. You also you have to you have to set a precedent or at least have a policy and stick to it. And Mercedes have now said, okay, we're going to do the sporting thing. They're going to have to drive that through now. And if, if they were to reverse that policy later in the season, uh, I, I think you know, that they would have to face the backlash that Toto Wolff said in his post-race press conference that they didn't really want to have to go through. But you could say that if in the last few races of the season, when it's really tight, let's say Vettel and Hamilton, really tight for the championship and Bottas is effectively out of it, generally nobody gets too upset about team orders in those scenarios do you, they? you would understand it wouldn't you but it, it was very interesting to see you know ben you were in that press conference as well to see how emotionally drained toto was after that obviously they'd had the the stress and woe with the it issue yeah. the, the cracked um fiber optic cable that disrupted their communications and must have 
started them off on a stressy foot. But mm. I, I don't think I've ever seen him. We've, we've seen angry Toto after Hamilton and uh, Rosberg have collided on track, but we've not seen sort of drained and tired and emotional Toto there. He, 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 really, he really did look like he'd, he'd kind of had to weigh a really, really heavy decision. He looked like he'd been through the ringer. And I think Mercedes are, are agonising really over how to deal with this new dynamic at the front of Formula One. They've spent the entire V6 era dominating and only really worrying about how they treat their drivers fairly. And that has been stressful, as we know. But in this situation, they've got the other team to worry about, Ferrari, and their own drivers. And I'm not sure they really know how best to play it. Early in the season, I think they looked like they were backing Hamilton because they didn't expect Bottas to ever really be quick enough, early enough to be in contention. But now he kind of is. They almost want to spread their bets and revert to type. But it's not so easy to do that when Ferrari are very competitive at most tracks now and clearly backing one driver to win the championship, even though Raikkonen is still mathematically in contention, which is the big distinction between Ferrari's approach and Mercedes' approach. It's very simple for Ferrari. They know what they're doing in terms of that. So it's exactly. Vettel and Raikkonen know exactly what's going to happen in the race. And it's an interesting counterpoint. Sebastian Vettel's championship lead is 14 points. Now, difference between winning and second is seven points. The Monaco reverse between Vettel and Raikkonen, and this reverse where potentially Raikkonen could have got ahead of Vettel, there's your 14 points. So yeah. you start to see these numbers do add up. Marginal gains. The other thing about Mercedes versus Ferrari is at Silverstone, Mercedes were very dominant. Their advantage was probably bigger than was anticipated. And the thing I was interested to see coming to Hungary was this was always going to be kind of towards the other end of the spectrum. Ferrari's always going to be a lot stronger here. But this was where we kind of got the the other end of the range to see where Ferrari was. And if Mercedes and Hamilton had beaten Ferrari in a straight fight, that would have been the death knell for Ferrari's championship hopes without a serious upgrade. But I think it's good to see that Ferrari is still in there, able to fight. And although you'd probably say on balance Mercedes will have the edge at more of the remaining tracks. It at least shows there's still a championship fight going on between the two. Yeah, absolutely. I think the last two circuits have shown the extremes of each team's philosophy in terms of car design. Silverstone really suited the Mercedes, low rake, long wheelbase, going for efficient downforce, lots of power from the engine, trying to maximise that. And it will go well at Suzuka, probably at Malaysia. And as you say, most of the most of the tracks, that's how they've calculated things over the last few years. They want to design a car that's going to work at most circuits, which involves sacrificing one or two outliers. Ferrari, it seems, have gone more to the other end of the spectrum. They run high rake, which is better at low speed, strongest at Monaco and Hungary. And you'd expect Singapore would be their next track where they're really strong. That comes at a compromise at some of the higher speed tracks with the longer straights. Vettel's been saying for a few races that the Ferrari is stronger than the Mercedes in the corners and GPS data I've seen from some teams indicates that Ferrari probably has the, the best chassis overall if, in terms of downforce or cornering ability, but it comes with a penalty of drag. And if your engine is not strong enough to push through that, you are going to suffer at places where the straights are long, such as Silverstone Monza. And if they hadn't maximised the opportunity here... We probably wouldn't be having the conversation like this. Uh, we, we'd be talking instead about have Ferrari blown it. Oh, exactly, exactly. And that's what made this significant. It's interesting, though, coming back to how this point about the way they're playing it in terms of the Drivers' Championship. If, on balance, Ferrari has a little bit of a disadvantage on average over the remainder of the season, then they claw a little bit of that back with the Vettel-Reichenden arrangement they've got. So that's that's why Ferrari, maybe there's more pressure on on it to have this very clear delineation 
than there is on Mercedes. Yeah, taking what you can when you can is what won Nico Rosberg the World Championship. Yeah, that's that's what it's all about. And points make prizes. I'm sure that Raikkonen, while he's frustrated, he knows that if Sebastian Vettel has the chance later in the season, I'm sure Vettel will pay him back if the circumstances do allow it. Whether the circumstances will allow it will be quite surprising. But it should be noted that Vettel has had, for a big chunk of the first part of the season, a, a, not a massive championship lead, but a, but a handy championship lead. Obviously, he extended that again after it had, uh, had closed up at Silverstone. But it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And certainly, you could end up, by the time you get to Singapore, that gap's gone again with potentially you could see a couple of Mercedes 1-2s at Spa and Monza. But again, those are both slightly unusual circuits as well where strange things can happen, but they should presumably favour favour Mercedes. A lot will depend, obviously, on Ferrari's engine, whether they can bring a substantial update, which you'd expect they would try to do around their home race for Monza. If if they have something in the locker that they can unleash there, um, then they could propel themselves into the position of favourites over the rest of the season. But well, that would, be, that would be the game changer, wouldn't it? And it's not impossible because the difference in the power unit packages, it's not monstrous. It's not this vast chasm. It is conceivable they could make big inroads into that. And it would be fascinating, wouldn't it, if you have a situation where the power unit package is not a big part of the, the relative performance. Hungara Ring is probably a circuit that's as close to power unit neutral. You, as you can get, although along with Monaco, exactly. Although there's no, there's actually no such circuit of really course, because no. it's always going to play a part. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's you know that's why Ferrari probably will be under pressure to improve their engine still. Um, and Mercedes have the kind of reverse problem where they have to consider, as Bottas said, the high downforce package is, isn't working as well. They're not as competitive, but they still are competitive. You know, perhaps a cleaner run from Hamilton on Saturday, he might have been in that fight for pole position. They were very competitive in the race, although should be said comparison is difficult to make when Vettel was clearly managing a problem and going slow at the front. So will Mercedes try to alter philosophy a little bit and chase more downforce with that penalty of drag? Probably unlikely, but it's something they have to consider if the championship starts to get away from them. The Ferrari power unit angle is quite interesting because Ferrari have the same theoretical advantage that Mercedes do uh, in that they can consider their uh, power unit and car as, as a complete package and in theory trade off as, as, as they're designing it. The phrase is co-engineering. Co-engineering. Because obviously you can't say it's designed under one roof because obviously Bricksworth and Brackley are some geographical distance. It's one uh, big apart. roof. It's a big roof. You did mention, Ben, the problem that Vettel had. What do we actually know about that? Yeah, I think it was tricky. We don't really know an awful lot. There was no obvious problem on the data that Ferrari could see and point to. Um, Vettel said he could feel something something was wrong with the car from the moment they dropped it onto the grid and he did his formation lap but he indicated that the problem wasn't really that big to start with it's something that worsened through his first stint and we heard him obviously on the radio talking about the steering pulling to the left he had to adapt his driving I think he found it more difficult to turn in the left-handers than in the right-handers the team asked him to stay off the curbs which was really a precaution because they didn't know what the problem was and I guess they just wanted to be ultra cautious and protect the car in case there was something about to break. Um, When I spoke to the team, they were still analysing. They don't know the clear cause. It seems as if the problem was manageable because later in the race, when Hamilton was let through by Bottas, obviously the pace intensified and both Ferraris up the game and were able to lap probably about a second a lap quicker, I calculated from looking at it. So uh, even if it was difficult to drive 
it was still possible for Vettel to to go pretty quickly even with the problem so we can only conclude that although it was holding him back it wasn't terminal or particularly difficult to manage for someone of his caliber I suppose the the, the point we have to make is that he he said that um, it was actually physically the when he was driving in a straight line uh, as the problem intensified the steering wheel was actually sort of offset to the left so that's not like in, in your road car if your steering wheel uh, develops a little bit of an offset and isn't quite on straight when you're driving in a straight line that's a cosmetic issue and quite irritating if you're anally retentive in a racing car where you basically have not that many turns from lock to lock it actually becomes a a, a big issue that you have to manage in the cockpit because it, it makes steering the car that much harder it's to Vettel's credit that he got through that. It's to the team's credit that they managed the race well. Raikkonen's credit that he played the game. Actually, I think across the board, this was a very, very well-executed race by Ferrari. So credit to them. Now, we talked a little bit about team strategies, team approaches. Obviously, Ferrari had one, Mercedes had another. There was a third way, exemplified by Red Bull, which is one of your drivers makes a hole in the side pod of the other. Didn't work out well, did it? No, no. It, it was a massive blunder by Max, wasn't it? He just went in too hot, locked a wheel, and um, the, the momentum carried him thusly into the side of a car that, that was on the outside. And unfortunately, that car belonged to his teammate, which is the cardinal sin, really. Interesting, there, there used to be in the Philippines a, a Catholic um, official called Cardinal Sin, parenthetically, <laughs> but... Um, uh, which is amusing. Obviously, in this case, the cardinal sin was not particularly amusing for Daniel Ricciardo, who then spun off in his own oil, which is, uh, uh, I think, the ultimate indignity for a racing driver. He was also pictured giving the finger to Verstappen as he drove past, um, whilst walking away, trudging away despondently from his stricken <laughs> red bull. Oh, that, so. that, that's great, though. I love the, the the art of the fist shake is uh, has been lost, and I, I think giving someone the finger or a fist shake. It, brings you back to the days of um, James Hunt. We could also see Ricardo furiously exchanging words with Helmut Marco in the garage, clearly very, very annoyed with his teammate. Amateur was the word. Sore loser as well, I think, on the radio. And I think he's probably got a point. I mean, Ricardo's obviously particularly frustrated because he was driving really well this weekend. His weekend derailed by that hydraulic problem in final practice which compromised his preparations for qualifying on Friday he was the standout driver and he probably would have fancied his chances after that that start he took advantage of the concertina effect delaying both Verstappen and Hamilton as the cars all piled into turn one got himself on the on the cutback inside line coming out of that that turn and then on the outside for turn two and I think he felt I'm going to make up a couple of places here and really that corner was his I think Verstappen typically aggressive at the start and I think you know, it's not the first time he's got himself into trouble with an aggressive approach at the first one or two turns. And first lap nutcase. Well, I think it's it's more nuanced than that, isn't it? <laughs> he he knows he's in a car that isn't capable ordinarily of beating a Ferrari or a Mercedes, so he's taking more risks in the early parts of races to get ahead of them because he knows if he gets ahead of them, given that more often than not, long run pace now across the three teams is pretty even the Renault engine is good enough in race trim that they can compete but they still have weaknesses so he has to do all his work at the start and that's leading him to take probably a little bit too much risk not leave enough margin he had that collision in Spain with Bottas and Raikkonen he had that collision with Vettel at the start in Canada which he got away with Uh, now he's had a collision with his own teammate he probably just needs to rein it in a little bit and see 
the bigger picture. He got away with it in his own his own race this time, but the consequences could have been potentially disastrous for both Red Bulls. That said, you talk about the aggressive approach of Verstappen. I see it less as Verstappen needs to get rid of his aggressive approach. It's more he needs to get better at evaluating it. Oh, that's what Dan, I, that's I what mean, I mean. Yeah, I, mean, I don't. R- I don't. Ricardo's very aggressive, but he manages to to go up to the line but never quite beyond it. Whereas Verstappen needs to just just gain that little bit of balance, and that's probably just an experience thing, really, isn't it? Although yeah. it's not the Verstappen. It's like in his a clumsy challenge in in football or rugby, isn't it? Yeah, where you just physically go slightly too far. Youthful exuberance. I think yeah. it's quite comparable with the incident uh, with the Ferraris in Spa last year where Verstappen started on the front row didn't have a good start tried to make everything back at the first corner and there was a touch he normally judges these passing moves really well to the absolute millimeter very impressive and I think the incidents we've seen are not the kind of out of control incidents that so scuppered Grosjean in the early part of his career but I think Ricardo has a point with his sore loser comment. It does seem that if that if something happens in a race that goes against Verstappen's plan or uh, sets him back, he doesn't react particularly well in the heat of the moment. He tries trying to make up for it in one tr- minute. He tries than exactly an hour. Tr- tries to make it up too quickly. He's not very good at accepting small defeats, uh, and that that is uh, an immaturity thing, or it, it's likely to be. We have to see if he can if he can iron that out, or, or whether it ends up being something that's more fundamental to his character. If it is, then that will be that will be the flaw to what is otherwise a, a, a pretty genius driver. The positive of Verstappen is he publicly, at least, was very quick to apologise, accept it was his error. I imagine he will be making sure internally it's as smooth over as possible. I think Ricardo suggested it's kind of down to Max how it goes from here, and I think. There's a limit to what how angry Ricardo can be, and if Max just says Meyer are stupid, have a proper chat about. It. I'm sure, I'm sure Ricardo would be very forthright about it, but they can at least have that and then take the next step. There's no sort of lingering disagreement. Yeah, and they have a good relationship as well. This is not like Rosberg and Hamilton. They they respect each other. Ricardo's been a sort of older brother figure, I think, to Verstappen in early seasons in Formula One. Obviously, Ricardo also has a very even temperament. You know, he's a happy-go-lucky guy. He's very good at dealing with setbacks. This is probably the angriest you ever see him. Yeah, I've, I've not really seen him that angry before. No, it's so I think unusual. if any teammates can deal with this kind of particular controversy, it's, it's them. But um, as you say, it'll be down to how Verstappen reacts, but not just in words. It has to be in deeds as well. And this this goes back to how he judges these fine margins, particularly when racing his teammate for position. There is, of course, another way they could deal with it, which is the Nico Hulkenberg-Kevin Magnussen approach, <laughs> which we saw after the race, which was which was rather fun. Obviously, Kevin Magnussen was being interviewed in the TV pen. Nico Hulkenberg also in the pen. The, the, the interview pen, it's a big sort of square area cordoned off for the tv crew so drivers go from tv crew to tv crew they're all in there together after the race and while kevin was being interviewed nico came over and uh gave him slightly patronizing he gave him a rather sarcastic congratulation i think it was something like for for being the 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 most sportive the the most sportive driver on the grid yes that's right yeah lots of sarcastic thumbs up from holkenberg as well and uh magnuson's response was suck my balls what a great comeback though and from and from the top of his head because it was effortless as well wasn't it it did make holkenberg look a bit stupid (laughs) it it did because it's just so dismissive as well wasn't it which which is a great thing it's you, when, when when someone is so high-handed and patronising and also quite rude in interruptions 
interrupting a, a live TV interview uh, to just basically be um, making an ungracious, I'm going to have the last word here uh, comment. You, your only alternative is to have a better last word that they can't come back to. And boof, there you go. He underlined it straight away and then nonchalantly came back and carried on his interview. Magnus, I thought, great style. By it's K. not outstanding Mag- as well when <laughs> in Hulkenberg's position, Magnussen had been penalised, given a five-second penalty for forcing Hulkenberg off the road at turn two. Rightly, I think. Yeah, I think that's he, he fair. Ran him, he yeah, ran him wide. Enough, he Perfectly legitimate penalty. Definitely didn't leave a car's width and, it, the, and exactly, the car yeah. was more than alongside. So Yeah, and the stuff about Hulkenberg have the option to break. Well, you've, there, there are he racing. Did. He did. He outbraked to, Magnussen and went yeah. round his outside. Was yeah, there, so. yeah, Hulkenberg, was, Hulkenberg was there legitimately. He, yeah, should, he couldn't disappear. He had to be given some space. But it's just amusing. This is has kind of turned back, and everyone, nobody's now talking about Magnussen being a bit Larry there, which is what Hulkenberg would have wants to happen. Everyone's talking about Hulkenberg, Hulkenberg being, being quite churlish and K Mag being a, a great wit with the South Park reference. Yeah, absolutely. Of all yeah. things. You know, it's, it's all, ultimately, it's good fun. They're not long out of the car. So you don't have to take this this stuff too seriously. No. It's quite nice. I'd actually like to see more abusive gestures and more uh, more such comments after a race. At least it shows what the drivers think. You can't you can't claim they're being PR robots. I yeah. think more of that, please. I think there was a bit of a siege mentality at Haas as well because Hulkenberg and Grosjean, Magnussen's teammate, came together at Turn One right in front of Magnussen, and I think he said, "Yeah, he did radio, say on the radio, uh, how can if, he get away with that? If he's going to get away with that, it's going to be a dirty race." Uh, and Günther Steiner, the team boss, was defending Magnussen afterwards, saying that he basically was standing up to Hulkenberg for for being a bully. So perhaps Magnussen was minded to give Hulkenberg a bit less room based on the events early in the race, kind of sticking up for his teammate. He and Grosjean get on quite well and has a very good at kind of on other teams and defending each other. Also, on the flip side, Magnussen has been a bit naughty on one or two occasions in the past it's not the first time that he's transgressed the limits in aggressive defense I remember in Canada he was he was quite robust in getting his elbows out should we say so I mean in his case there wasn't really much to lose I mean he lost two positions as a result of the the five second time penalty but it didn't make any difference in terms of points because the best he was going to do was finish 11th but again probably just needs to step away from the line a little bit it's worth briefly mentioning, I guess, the Force India collision as well. Yeah. We saw Perez while going up the inside of Ocon into turn one, while Van Dorn was kind of on the, the tight line on the inside and slipping back, in fact. Perez blamed it on there being three going into one corner and just one of those things. Ocon was, was less happy with it. He sustained floor damage. Perez sustained a little bit of front wing damage. They went on to finish eighth and ninth, which actually, if you force India with the pace you had there, you'd be pretty happy with that. So the best they could have done. Exactly. So there's no great negative to it, but there seems to be a little bit of potential for some aggro there. Obviously, we had Canada with uh, Ocon being annoyed he wasn't let past on his quicker tyres. Then they had the collision that ultimately was Ocon's fault in Baku. And when Perez had explained this sort of three into one thing, that was his reason for it uh, a little bit after the race, other than asked Ocon so well this is what Checo thought of it do you think that's right Ocon just said no and he didn't really want to elaborate on it he didn't want to have a public row but it's very very clear that Ocon didn't really buy that that's one of those things argument and I imagine that's understandable if you're held responsible for the Baku thing you think well hang on a minute yeah first corners you make more allowances don't you these things do are more likely to happen but you can see there's a little bit of potential for tension there especially with Ocon getting quicker and quicker yeah he's putting Perez under a lot of pressure and more pressure than Perez was probably expecting at this stage. 
He's I think, seriously quick, Ocon, though, isn't he? Good as Perez is, and he's a very good Grand Prix driver. Yeah, Ocon's very, got a touch yeah. of magic about him. Yeah, yeah. and the team are, are massively impressed with his rate of progress, so he surprised even them how quickly he's come on. And they obviously took him knowing that he was going to potentially do this kind of thing. I think also his mindset's going to be affected slightly by the fact that, as you say, there's been this history of recent incidents. They don't trust each other in wheel-to-wheel battle, do they? So if Perez could well have slightly misjudged how close Vandon was on the inside, understeered accidentally into Ocon. He certainly wasn't trying to take him out, but from Ocon's point of view, you think, well, you defended aggressively against me in Canada. You touched me before we had that crash in Baku. Now you're banging into me again here. He's not going to give him the benefit of the doubt, is he? What's very interesting about Ocon is how well he's integrated into the team as well. He's really, really popular with everyone. You know, the the, the guys who are washing the wheels uh, that you meet in the paddock say, what, what a great bloke he is. They don't necessarily say the same thing about Perez, although they don't um, stand up and say, well, he's difficult. But they invite them to express an opinion about the drivers and they will say what a, not just how quick Ocon is, but how easy he is to deal with and low maintenance and even tempered. And it's clear that he's a popular guy in, in that team. And I, I think he will make progress And when it comes to driver choice in future years. Well, we they should clearly want to keep hold of him. Well, we should remember as well that Ocon is essentially the driver Mercedes signed as their answer to Max Verstappen. They, yeah. they fought each other for the European Formula 3 Championship in 2014. Obviously, everybody was clamouring after Verstappen's signature when Red Bull won that race by virtue of having a second team that they could stick Verstappen in into Formula 1 straight away. Mercedes backed Ocon, and there are people within Formula 3 who rate Ocon even higher than Verstappen. So, Force India know they've got their hands on, at least temporarily, on a on a really, really exciting prospect. So, that's bound to, to galvanise the team. And Force India know how to develop young drivers, bring them on. Obviously, another one of their former young drivers was Paul Resta. Got a shock return to Formula 1 for the first time since the end of the 2013 season. The TV man was... drives F1 car. Exactly, yeah. yeah, exactly. He was, of course, standing in for Martin Brundle on Sky Sports F1, the, the UK broadcaster. In fact, Paul said that uh, his wife had mentioned it to him. Oh, wouldn't it be funny if, when you're going out there to stand in for Martin Brundle, Williams need you to stand in, which, of course, is exactly what happened. But bizarrely and almost uniquely, De Resta went straight into qualifying in a car he'd never driven before. He'd done a little bit of simulator running, but not since before Melbourne, he said. He's had a tiny bit of experience of this generation of power unit car. He's done a very small number of laps in a 14 car. They've uh, run for various reasons. But he went in, had, I think, 11 laps in qualifying, four or five push laps, qualified 19th ahead of Ericsson. I think that was a very good effort. Yeah, outstanding. Extraordinary, yeah. Yeah, and I think extraordinary probably is the word the word for that. And then in the race, running around in 18th, he was battling with the Sauber's. Lost a little bit of time while being lapped, which probably dropped him back behind them and then retired with a with an oil leak. The car was not consuming oil, but oil was going away at a at an unusual rate and they weren't entirely sure why. And the auxiliary tank was empty. So they thought, well, we're going to have to pull him in because otherwise we're going to launch this. New we, we risk launching this new engine. But you can't ask for a reserve driver in those circumstances to do a better job, yeah. really, can you? From a physical point of view as well, to, that he, he managed that many laps, having, you know, he, he obviously didn't have that race fitness. And although it's not a, a high-speed, high-G-loading circuit, there must still be quite a lot of forces going through a driver's body 
on the, the, the other fun thing he had as well is he said that going into the race he was expecting it to be a little bit uncomfortable because he's he's he is f1 fit effectively but he's not race fit so He's can, been racing in the DTM, hasn't he? So, but F1 race fit, different loadings, yeah. etc. So he's had, sure. well, my shoulders hurt a bit. But I think what ended up distracting him most in the race was, for whatever reason, the, the race boots he was using were a bit small. So he's actually in quite a lot of pain with his feet. He's shown he can be a good reserve if he's plugged in. I guess he's made himself an outsider for a, a 2018 race seat somewhere, although it's very, very, very difficult to see where there'll be an opportunity. But at worst, he's done a very good job. At best, he's launched himself back into a position where he could do that job again or slip into a full-time seat on the off chance one happens to appear. Yeah, he did a, he did a really good job in pretty much impossible circumstances. And yeah, it was it was no Luca Badoa moment, was it? No, no, no. The, the, the Luca Badoa is the yin to that yang, isn't he? You're completely useless. Just to jump into a car straight into qualifying is very unusual. It's hard to think of many drivers who did it. In fact, the one driver... You could did, think of one, though, I, I did come up with one. Well, yeah. Green Chandock, when he made his F1 debut for HRT another in Bahrain. Another TV, TV star. Yeah, another TV star. A TV yeah. star, and of course, best known for his appearances on the Autosport podcast. A legend in the Autosport podcast. Exactly, exactly. He's another person who's provided a, a studio for us, as, as it were. In, and in he's classes. bought the coffees as well. Why yeah, didn't yeah, you yeah. do that, Ben? Well, this is not my studio. No, I suppose not. Well, there we go. There we go. And but, how did how did, did Chantok do in his uh, well? He, he jumped. Drive? He jumped into the car that they basically. This was not because he filled in for anyone, but basically, the the HRT team hadn't really got round to building the car until until the run up to run up to the Bahrain Grand Prix, and it was finished just in time for qualifying. Oh, in their first season. In their first season, yeah. So he jumped straight into the car and uh, did fine. But then he did find the wall quite early on. But <laughs> I guess that's excuse. That was also his, his debut as well. So it's not. Even they were terrible, weren't they? They're, they're, if if anyone ever says to you why why is there such a high bar a high barrier to entry in Formula One, just show them a picture of that rubbish car. Certainly not a not a very effective team, but it, it's good for Duresta to show that you know he's a capable driver and he can do a job. I think it's a shame for him really that he had to jump in uh, to a Williams that isn't working very well at the moment. It hasn't been really since they updated significantly in Austria and on one of its worst tracks. If we talk about how Ferrari seem to have the best car, undoubtedly on the slow speed tracks like Monaco. Hungary, Singapore, over the last few seasons, Williams have been consistently awful on those types of tracks. So there was always going to be a limit to how much he could achieve. On the one hand, you could say, well, that gives him less opportunity to shine in the broader sense. But also perhaps it took the pressure off because expectations were going to be very low. Uh, Teammate Lance Stroll didn't make it out of Q1. If he'd had an absolutely perfect qualifying session, he might have just squeaked out of Q1. So this was never going to be a weekend where Williams was going to turn up any trees and so Duresta kind of just had to to slot in and, and bring the car home if he could. Yeah, which he did. And, you know, he's shown that at 31 that there is life in him as a Grand Prix driver if he gets an opportunity uh, on the off chance. So, and life in his wife as a as a soothsayer, soothsayer as well. exactly. Yeah, he did, we did say his wife can wife can tell the future. So uh, never know. She may, she may well be even now predicting a, a full-time race seat to somewhere next year. Or if, if, if you need some money, she could always uh, play the football pools or something in her well, profession as a soothsayer. See if you can raise an F1 budget big enough uh, out of doing that. Obviously, there was a lot going on off track at the Hungara Ring. We had the announcement on Thursday that the Sauber Honda deal is officially off. And then the subsequent announcement that they were going to have Ferrari power for the future. And it'll be an up-to-date power unit package as opposed to the year old one that they're currently using interesting move for Sauber the Honda deal was very 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 good commercially for them very good but the team decided to go in a different direction for a 
Ferrari engine package that probably is going to be a bit more competitive, but that isn't necessarily as great for them commercially. So interesting choice. Well, I think new team boss Fred Vasseur is a is a racer, isn't he? Well, he he would consider himself a racer first, and if your mindset is how well can we go racing, then you just want the most competitive engine that you can get your hands on. That will be Vasseur's approach, and he'll think, well, if we do a good job, score points, we'll attract the commercial sponsorship, and we'll get more money from doing well in the championship. So a, di- a different different approach, yeah. a change of tact, which is focused more on the outright performance of the car, which sorely needs to improve, as we can see. Yeah. And I think that that is a quandary that McLaren find themselves in as well, because they need to attract commercial sponsors, and that's something they aren't doing because of their ongoing performance. And they they, they could find themselves, if they don't turn around their performance, in, in a position similar to Sauber, uh, you know, a, a team with great facilities, but um, declining revenue. It's a gamble that could have paid off for for Sauber if Honda could have got everything together for next year. I guess that's what Manisha Kaltenborn was was banking on: take the money and hope that the next six eight months are enough for Honda to to turn things around. That you you get both: you get the money, you, you get cake, and you get to eat it effectively. But the fact that McLaren has been so uncompetitive for so long, constantly waiting on this uh, improvement that never really comes. I think probably Vasseur's weighed it up and gone, we're better off out of this. You, you play the field in front of you, don't you? And in in, in Grand Prix, you 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 play to the the, the conditions. You don't you, you don't act as if rain is coming. You you act when rain comes. And well, you trust your your uh, ubiquitous team radar, don't you? Which is perennially wrong. <laughs> and you, you know you you have to read the data. And so far, Honda hasn't delivered on sundry promises and expectations. And you don't even think that maybe they do. You know when we were at meet the team at McLaren on on Saturday night and Yusuke Hasegawa looks like the sort of person who's lost a 20 pound note and found a pound coin that's out of circulation and has a bit of chewing gum stuck on it and some fluff he really does look like a man under pressure every time they make big changes at Honda they seem to go backwards massively before they go anywhere forwards and when you're Sauber and you're at the back of the grid and well off than even the next slowest team you can't afford to take a risk on an engine that's going to potentially be no better than the one you've already got and of course driver lineup wise don't want to get into this too much last week we did the driver market podcast where we talked a lot about Charles Leclerc and also Antonio Giovinazzi both Ferrari contracted drivers so both of those drivers have had a boost in terms of their possibilities of, of getting onto the, the grid next year yeah massive boost and of course the Ferrari deal could come with you know, significant discounts on the basis that Sauber becomes de facto Ferrari junior team. So uh, there's, there's probably that commercial consideration going on as well. And from Vasseur's point of view, he thinks, well, I can get a more competitive engine for my team substantially and I can get one of uh, junior racing's most exciting prospects in the car. That is a great thing for them because when you're in a situation where you have, you're behind on so many things, you know, you look at the moment, they've got a... Uh, a, a previous spec engine so that that is a, a low performance level the the car that it's been under invested in so that's uh, a, a low performance level they've got well they're kind of stuck with marcus erickson given that uh, he's backed by the owners a quick driver on his day quick driver very on his very day. erratic not enough days i would say about yeah not him. enough days 
But um, to, to complete this rather long and circuitous thought, if you have a up-to-date engine and some hotshot drivers, they are things that are established and given. And once you have those as a baseline, then you can try and find, unlock performance from the technical package. I guess we should give credit to the ownership because it's a statement of intent, isn't it? They're not trying to run the team on the cheap, provided they do understand the decision they've made and that just putting an up-to-date engine in the car isn't going to solve all ills and they still need to invest on the car side properly. It could be positive for Sauber. One of the other topics off track that there was lots of talk about was the halo. Obviously, we had the confirmation this will be introduced next year. The FI did a presentation about why the halo is a great idea. Had a few teams complaining about it being quite late, the the design specification informations which the teams have now got but they only got it over the weekend so we'd be remiss not to mention it lots of controversy about is this a good idea bad idea what do we think i'm bored of the halo now (laughs) (laughs) shall i launch then yeah i think you should okay um ben folds oh dear music reference too too rich for me Ben Folt is back to a pale and faded CCTV image of himself. No, back, back to 3am at the end <laughs> of driver ratings. Oh, Halo. There's no way of looking at it other than as an ugly fudge, is there? It's something that no one really wants. I, th- I think least of all the FIA. But because they they showed that it was possible and they kind of committed to introducing cockpit protection... They had to do it because if if someone has an unfortunate accident and dies or is injured, there's the potential litigation element. And um, I, I don't want to sound too critical of the FIA because they, they do these things for proper safety reasons and they do attempt to be as rigorous as they can be and, and they do the best job they can. But having having a sort of a titanium sandal loop around the head of the driver is is nothing but an ugly fudge and you you go around and you see even the people who have expressed positive sentiments about it and are in favor of it don't actually like the shape of it and it's just something that's happening almost in spite of everything it's just happening anyway so uh, to to quote heaven 17 you can take it or leave it but you'd better believe it several things strike me about it it seems to me if you're going to try and protect the driver's head like that which is a, a worthy aim i don't actually believe that Anything is added by the extra danger to the driver. In terms of the, the, the excitement or the interest, it's still a very challenging thing to do. But I ask, if you're going to do that, why not just completely enclose it? Why go with this kind of nominal open car? It just seems like a slightly strange philosophical thing. I think you either have it open or you have it closed. Generally, I'm in favour of safety measures. There have been very few safety measures that have been researched and brought in that I thought were a bad idea, despite the fact there's lots of criticism of them. But Based on what they said last year, 17% of small objects would be stopped. A lot of large objects. It just seems to be quite a, a big price to pay for a very, very small overall gain. Of course, if we go to Melbourne and halfway through the race, a wheel smashes into one rather than a driver's head, we're all thinking, well, that's a good idea. Yeah, if it saves but, one life, then it's worth doing. But there are not many of these kind of incidents that happen. So I wonder whether the balance is, is incorrect in terms of the desperation to get something of a half measure of a design that yes there's no doubt the halo does make does give a net safety gain is it a big enough net safety gain is the question yeah it seems odd that Formula one's kind of backed itself into this corner when the categories in which drivers have lost their lives recently to um, large objects hitting them on the head haven't been in formula one wheels don't fly off the cars anymore because of other safety gains made very good wheel tethers yeah uh so 
there are no incidents really you can think of that have really come close to requiring this kind of protection and the Jules Bianchi incident at Suzuka was unsurvivable. So, well, we yeah, should the, stress that the Bianchi incident is actually nothing to do with this, of course. this move. The, it the was co- on the stocks The anyway. cockpit safety thing has been going on in the background for a long time. It's the FIA, it's the FIA Institute and it does a lot of the work. So credit, this has not been done without research. There's a lot of very good science that goes into this. I just think it's the way that the, the outcome has been analysed. It's a mistake. But yeah, Bianchi was a complete one-off in terms of hitting something that was designed not to be hit and now they've taken measures to ensure that you don't have a remotely live circuit with a with a mobile crane as I think we're supposed to call it but even so um it's clear from I think from the fact the teams were designing their 2018 cars around shield the cockpit protection trialed and ditched after Silverstone and um, because it made Vettel feel dizzy and sick yeah. um suggests that even the FIA weren't particularly strong on halo they didn't feel that it was the right solution or a a flawless solution to the problem so it feels like as you say we've got a fudge because what they hoped would work hasn't worked and i just feel like formula one would benefit from properly i'm not saying they haven't done their homework obviously as you say ed they they put a lot of work into it but it feels like again we're doing that bad old thing of rushing something out that isn't quite ready rather than waiting until the proper solution has been researched, found and implemented. Well, the evidence is clearly there. They committed to having a form of this system by next year and then that backed them into a corner of well, what system is ready to go. The shield is not ready to go and usable. The aero screen concept that Red Bull did had some significant flaws to it. They've experimented with canopies that have other, other problems. Obviously, you have a fully enclosed canopy. You can then propel wheels all manner of distances into crowds and into marshals so there's problems there it seems to me that they've done a lot of the research has been done but not quite completed for me something like this you could say well we'll we'll aim to introduce this at the earliest possible point indycar plans to have some kind of shield type thing uh, a cockpit screen and the current car the new car which is the old car but with a new aero kit less ugly a new standard aero kit it is designed to incorporate a screen once they have developed a viable design and something that works. That, to me, seems to be the logical approach. Yeah, that's the sensible approach. Don't just say, well, this shield concept is fundamentally better, but we have yet to make it work. And the shield concept can be developed to work. There's no doubt about it. You can make curved uh, curved, transparent surfaces that meet all the criteria. They just need to put some more work into it. The mistake was um, committing to a date before it was ready. Because yeah. inevitably, if you set a deadline for something that's difficult to develop, then you put yourself in the position of maybe having to commit to a solution that's not finished. And and that's basically what we've got. It's basically we're, we're having to open the oven before the cake has risen. To yeah. use another metaphor that somebody with seven years in the catering industry in a past life might do. You've got Shoot, to, shooting yourself in the knee, as it, Toto Wolf might say. It, well, yeah. you, you, can t- you can set a time that you're going to serve the meal, but if it's not cooked, it's not cooked. Or to be more relevant to your experience, you can't do the drying up before the washing up. No, indeed. And uh, perhaps what uh, the FIA need is uh, John Tarode and Greg Wallace gurning in the background and adding some peril as they try and work towards this deadline. Are you going to plate up? You've got five minutes. We've come full circle in our gastronomic references for which we apologise. Well, we're going to have to leave it there because we are going to have to head off and get our flight. Mr. Codling is our chauffeur, so he will have to go and prepare, polish the car, get his little hat on while we... While <laughs> yes, we, <my> lady. <laughs> while we... Serve pack the our, drinks. <laughs> pack our stuff up. So thanks very much, Ben Anderson and Stuart Codling. 
Remember to check out autosport.com for all the latest news and information, reports, features on goings-on in F1 and the world of motorsport as a whole. The Autosport Plus section for subscribers has got all sorts of things you can read there. Ben Anderson's driver ratings. Read them. Get angry. Disagree strongly on social media. He loves it. What is with Ben Anderson? Yes, there has been Nobody some, knows. There have been some... Uh, some discussions along those lines from certain areas. But they're very good. They're very rigorous. The amount of time he spends doing it, believe me, he, he does his research. And that's the one nice thing I'm going to say about you. <laughs> <laughs> this, this Finally. Poor, this poor man broken and wrecked from his 3am finish attempting to be rigorous. <laughs> Hashtag thanks for all your help. Finally, some positive feedback. There we go. That's the one bit of positive feedback you're going to get. Everything else is rubbish. If you want to read some more, Ben, Autosport magazine's out every Thursday. There'll be all sorts of Hungarian Grand Prix report analysis, features, coverage of all sorts of other series in there. So thanks very much for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. American Giant is the leading manufacturer of American-made clothing. When you choose American Giant, you are saying yes to clothes made under the highest standards, ones that support sustainable jobs, living wages, safe working conditions, and use high-quality materials. Plus, they have a full range of timeless, durable basics for men and women. Wear your values in the new year. Get 20% off with code NY23 at American-Giant.com. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com. Code NY23. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.